Nathan Martin, and uh, we're going to go in depth into uh, Socrates, humility, and the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I've covered the Dunning-Kruger effect on the show in the past with the trivia material. But uh, this should be a great show, and excited to have you back on, Nathan. And by the way, uh, thanks to everybody who sent donations and support uh, through the website during the week. I greatly appreciate that. And uh, appreciate all of the love and support. This is, of course, a listener-sponsored show. And uh, we are simulcasting on, oh, where are we? On YouTube, Main and Backup, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Twitch, a few others. So should be getting out there to at least some people, regardless of their shadow banning and whatnot. So uh, welcome back, Nathan. Good to have you back. Good to be here. It's a good show last week. Really enjoyed talking with you. It's good when, you know, when somebody gets it and the, the, the conversation just sails along because nobody's confused on uh, how to use critical thinking and whatnot, you know. <laughs> right. And, and you know, uh, speaking of Dunning-Kruger effect, I find most often that people who've never even studied critical thinking actually think they have the most critical thinking. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah, they uh, they definitely they they think that because they can argue that that's critical thinking, and that they've they've substituted being a sophist and arguing for critical thinking. Right, and you know, so sophistry from from Sophia, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, like philosophia, uh, that is using lying to manipulate people to your typically to your gain or benefit or to misdirect them into the direction that you want, not to the facts or the truth. Right. And a lot of times it's, they're not even aware. It, it's self-deceived thinking. So that's, it's not just lying to others. They're lying to themselves. First Correct. And foremost. Correct. And uh, for those of you who've never studied the Dunning-Kruger effect, I do have up on the, hold on a second, up on the uh, Trivium website, let me just pull that back up here. I just had it up and for whatever reason closed it. Uh, but Dunning-Kruger here up on the Trivium website, if you go to study materials and just click on that and then uh, you can find it here under David Dunning and Justin Kruger, unskilled and unaware of it, how difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to self-inflated or, uh, lead to inflated self-assessments. And so just click on read online right there and you can read through the whole thing. It's a really good argument. I recommend people study all about the Dunning-Kruger effect and and how uh, ignorant people essentially think they're the most aware. And you had sent me some images for use tonight and I'm just looking around for those. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Here they are. And uh, let's get into Socrates here. Okay. Well, more specifically, uh, Socratic dialogue, or also called uh, Socratic questioning or the Socratic method. Um, and really, you know, one of the things that Socrates is famous for is his famous saying that I know, I know that I know nothing. Um, and according to Wikipedia, it's a saying it was derived from Plato's account of the Greek philosopher Socrates. It's also called the Socratic paradox, because he's saying that he knows that he knows nothing, and yet he's this brilliant man. How, how can this brilliant man know nothing? And that's why it's a paradox. The phrase is not one that Socrates himself is ever recorded as saying, but 
as mentioned, it was in Plato's account. Correct. Well, you know, I'm not sure what the heck I did with your images for us to show them as we go here. Uh, here's, oh, found them. Right when I said that, I found them. Should have just bit my tongue for a second. They just popped right up. Good, good. All right, go ahead. Okay, so a book I really recommend on the subject is from uh, criticalthinking.org. Uh, it's a thinker's guide to the art of Socratic questioning by Richard Paul and Linda Elder. Um, Richard Paul is now deceased, but uh, she's still kicking and criticalthinking.org is still kicking. I highly recommend that website along with all of their reading materials. Uh, in the introduction, I'll just read the, the brief introduction. Starts off with a quote from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. So Socratic questioning is a disciplined questioning that can be used to pursue thought in many directions and for many purposes, including to explore complex ideas, to get to the truth of things, to open up issues and problems, to uncover assumptions. And I think this is very important to uncover assumptions because we have so many assumptions that go unchallenged and we don't even realize we have them when we have our beliefs. And so using... Socratic dialogue to uncover these assumptions and also to uncover our base philosophies and worldviews is super important. Uh, you can use it to analyze concepts, to distinguish what we know from what we don't know, and to follow out logical implications of thought. So you're going to follow, you're going to try to use it to find out where does it end? What is the actual logical conclusion of what I believe? The, the key to disting, uh, distinguishing Socratic questioning from questioning, per se, is that Socratic questioning is systematic, disciplined, and deep, and usually focuses on foundational concepts, principles, theories, issues, or problems. So regular questioning doesn't necessarily go as deep as Socratic dialogue does. So uh, how does the Socratic dialogue... Uh, relate with the basic foundation of the trivium by beginning with any new subject by asking uh, who, what, where, and when before we try to claim we know why about anything. Yeah, you're definitely going to want to start with uh, the the who, where, what, when when you're doing it. Then you're going to go to the why, and then finally to the how. Um, if you can't even you know start with those questions, if you can't really start with a trivium, then it's I don't know, it's really not worth it. You're just at uh, even a, if I'm at a doing loss. it, I do philosophy sessions, and in my sessions with people, I'm always starting off with, you know, well, who was there with you? What was going on? What's the story? When was this in your lifetime? Was it when you were a child? Uh, where did it happen? Was it at your childhood home? Was it, you know, at school? Those kinds of things. These are all important details to start creating the story, because you know, we 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 try to create we as a child we we create a why based on these events that happen to us, these stories that happen to us and our why that we come up with isn't necessarily correct uh, because it's, it's a, it's the mind of a child that is taking and creating meaning for this experience. You know, like, you know, my uncle sexually abused me. Well, that that's the kind of the what and the where and the who and the when, and then you have to kind of go into the why and the child's why is, well, because I'm not worth protecting because I'm unworthy because I'm not lovable. And we have to deconstruct that why, and we have to kind of recreate it. And I do all that with Socratic dialogue. And I had posted on uh, Facebook yesterday, approach every new topic as though you're incompetent. Then maybe you can learn something. 
And, you know, so many people that I come across and who attack me for my research, they come at things, you know, it's like, okay, so like my mom, when she was seven years old, she tried Brussels sprouts, hated them, you know, and uh, it's like this was when she was seven. So she didn't try them again for 65, 70 years. So (laughs) she's at my house for for dinner one night and you know what are we having well steak and brussels sprouts and blah 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 you know oh well those are terrible she takes a bite out of one and wow these are really good (laughs) you know but she had that false belief like you said from childhood for more than for more than 65 years you know and it's so it's like where are you getting your information from is it a confirmation bias if if i go online and I look up Trump is a liar, am I only looking for things that are adhering to my confirmation bias? Uh, Trump and Russia collusion. Okay, well, that's clearly been proved that Hillary Clinton made that up, made up the dossier, all of that stuff. Um, you know, And then there was the quid pro quo that now we know beyond any doubt was Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, and we have Joe Biden on camera admitting that he did the whole thing, and they put it on to Trump. And then you go down the list, and it's like, okay, so what have you personally verified and checked the primary original citation on to know if it's true or not? Not just, you know, one source, but go down and back it and prove it. And so people get into a confirmation bias rather than digging down and looking for the original primary citation and and once you find it looking at it unbiasedly and saying uh okay what does this say and i'm going to base my opinion on the original citation period you know it's like you know people would send me i get these leftists on facebook that would send me these trump quid pro quo things and i would send them the biden video admitting that he did the whole thing yeah. And they couldn't even take it in. They couldn't even acknowledge that it was actually Biden and the left putting it on to Trump. Yeah, it's very difficult to when when you first you need courage, but you also need humility. And if you haven't actually developed humility, because I think about it, school systems and didactic education in general, didactic schooling in general is telling you what to believe and they're constantly telling you what to believe. And you get in this pattern of taking in this information and then you have to repeat it back to them to get the right score. And so your identity is formed based on this repeating what you're told. And now if, if people are telling you this, now you're going to have to repeat it back to them. And that's, if the media is telling they're the authority, they're the school teacher and you know, people accepting you, that's like your good grades. And they, they can't let go of that. And if you are actually trained in a, a, like a Socratic classroom where they don't tell you the answers, they ask you questions and you have to actually assess these things, you're not going to get stuck in that because you're starting off with humility and you're developing humility. But the, the current schooling model, didactic, which is teaching by telling, that's not going to actually encourage humility. In fact, it's going to encourage arrogance and pretentiousness because you you, it's like a, a, a self-reinforcing system. It, it reinforces itself through the uh, peer pressure and through the grades and, and you know, through the acceptance. 
Yeah, it does. You know, it's like uh, when I started doing a lot of research, I used to buy into a lot of the it's the Jews rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And then I started with Lloyd DeYoung and Todd started doing a series of shows on Islam. And in the process of doing all the shows and the research for that and going through thousands of citations, what we realized was that Islam and the neo-Nazis who worked very closely together were doing a bait and switch of their activities onto the Jews. And, uh, you know, so I had to be humble and say, look, I was wrong. Here's, mm-hmm. here's better information. And, uh, you know, here are all the citations, which you cannot find in the Talmud and whatnot, you know, and I went through them and what they'll do is they'll take one little line or sentence out of the Talmud and then ignore the whole 10 page discussion around it, debunking that one line and say, look, see, it's there. But they ignore the whole context and they have to lie about the context in which it was used. And so when we discovered all of that, I took a lot of flack, you know, and then I, you know, but it was about being humble and saying, look, I'm not adhering to what my confirmation bias is. Here are the facts. Here's what we discovered. Let's look at this together. If you can prove it wrong, prove it wrong. Uh, You know, and then, of course, they said there's a, you know, secret Talmud that's buried, you know, 15 floors beneath street level that they only bring out on Friday nights under a full moon (laughs) and this kind of stuff, you know. And, uh, but, you know, interestingly, they wouldn't even acknowledge the thousands of citations that we pulled up from primary sources in Islamic texts. So the Quran, the Hadith, the Sunnah, the Tasfir, uh, the Sharia, the Way of the Traveler, all of this stuff. And we found all of these, you know, like it's, it's everywhere that all, all non-believers, all kafir are to be murdered or subjugated and you pay the, the, the tax, the, you know, why do you think they do that? Why do you think it, um, what is the mechanism in thinking that causes somebody to shut down on receiving new information and not being able to take in new information? That is really interesting. You know, and it's like, okay, we can go back to the trivium or we can go back to what you're talking about a minute ago, the, you know, the Socratic method, but it has to do with the ego and not admitting one is wrong. It's like when I started the show back in 2008, I began I, I, I began it by interviewing like 65 of the world's leading psychedelic drug experts. And in the process of doing all of those interviews and transcribing them for this huge thousand page book project, I realized that the whole thing was a fraud. And in 2010, 2011, 2012, I began exposing the whole thing and what I found. And, you know, the audience freaked out on me. Nothing like what they did when I began exposing Islam, but, to you know, almost to that level, actually. But you had so many people who were, you know, high on ayahuasca, laying face down in the mud in some hut in, in Peru or Brazil or somewhere out in the middle of the uh, Amazon jungle, and they just could not admit that these things could be used for negative, could be suggestions. And the most common argument I get is, and each person who brings up this argument each and every time thinks that they are original, and I have never considered this argument. And their argument is always, one, I haven't tried them, which of course I have, and even wrote books on them, and two, 
the plants and the mushrooms are older than the CIA, so therefore. And that is the whole basis of all critical thinking that they use. And they don't even consider the possibility that Native American tribes or, or indigenous people around the world could have used these things for suggestogens to inculcate the youth into their culture at any point throughout time. And that's really the divergence between understanding Logos and truth is God that we covered last week versus being high on drugs and the outer and the inner God and Sufi Gnosticism in theogens, Carl Ruck, CIA agent, or uh, asset Carl Ruck, who developed the word entheogen, uh, you know, for MKUltra Subproject 58, creating that word to make people think that that was the origins of religion, not truth and logos, but being high. You know, and I fell for that for a time too, but I spent the last, you know, decade exposing it. Interestingly, I had this conversation last night with this guy also named Nathan. And he had seen my 15-year-old work, and he was blown away by it. But he hadn't seen any of the last decade of stuff. And it's like, but he was actually pretty humble and seemed willing to, uh, you know, consider the new updated information. You know, and it's like, you know, well, you know, people will say, well, if you believe something before, then you're a flip-flop or whatever if you change your opinion on it now. Well, if you're following, if you're using the trivium and critical thinking, you should always be able to change your opinion on what you believe previously based on new facts. When I was Yeah, as new evidence comes in. Right. It's creating a new picture. Well, and what I was going to add to that is when I was 4 or 5, I believed in Santa Claus, you know. <laughs> and the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy, you know, because you know, I would put my tooth under the pillow and I wake up in the morning and there'd be a silver dollar under the pillow or a you know, $2 bill or whatever. You know, but you know, just because I don't believe those things now, you know, and now I'm a parent. Now I know that I'm the one that puts the the two bucks under the pillow or whatever the, you know, the case. So people expect you to not follow the truth and just to hear, adhere to the confirmation bias. So going back to answering your question in a very long, drawn out process here, I think this whole thing is what is included in people not being able to admit that they're wrong and not being able to uh, come forth and just say, "Yeah, I was wrong. Here's why." You know, it's the you know, it's the ego. It's it's whatever, or they're intentionally lying using Takia, whatever the heck. They have an agenda, or their well, that, ego that would definitely do it. An agenda would definitely do it. An, an agenda will always do it. An ego can be broken down sometimes where they can finally see and say, okay, I was wrong. But with an agenda, basically there has to be so much overwhelming evidence to prove otherwise that only then will they admit it. You know, it's like Joe Biden isn't going to come out and say, yeah, I was the one behind the whole quid pro quo. Although as fast as he's going senile now, it may be another week before he slips and spews that out. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I definitely, um, sometimes we would call it an emotional attachment, but really you, when you build your identity on certain beliefs, like SJWs, they'll build their identity on certain beliefs. And uh, they just know that these people are, you know, that whites, you know, white straight males are oppressors and that the patriarchy is evil. And no matter what you sh- evidence you show them, they're 
they can't because the ideology is in control of their mind. They're not in control of their mind. They actually forfeited their will and they forfeited their will because they wanted that as a part of their identity. Right. They wanted this belief in this support system right. as part of their Well, identity. well, you know, if you is. if you have to consider that Montezuma had, you know, for his coronation had sacrificed 8,000 slaves as book 12 or 13 discusses in the uh Florentine Codex written by the Aztecs or the excuse me for the snowflakes who are going to get upset for the Mexica. Uh, you know, well, it wasn't Cortez that handed him the the 8,000 slaves for him to sacrifice at his coronation. The Mexican or the Aztec Empire was a very large empire and they thrived off of taking slaves from the surrounding tribes. And the surrounding tribes, which the, these leftists don't want to admit, the surrounding tribes were so fed up with Montezuma that when Cortes showed up, like 65, 70% of the surrounding tribes joined up with him to help him overthrow Montezuma and the Mexica Empire. You know, so, you know, and then so, and here's the thing is, Human sacrifices, cannibalism, all of this stuff, that's what the Mexica were involved in. It was satanic, you know, serpent worship and mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And so then, you know, oh, but, you know, Christians were the oppressors because they took away that religion, you know. And, well, you know, well, Jesus was the last human sacrifice. So, well, we can't do human sacrifices anymore. So therefore, you know, the Christians were the oppressors, you know, and it's like you actually see this this ideology coming out of the liberal left, out of Mexico and, and whatnot these days, and people actually believe this stuff. Never mind that, you know, well, up until the liberals get control again, there is there hasn't been human sacrifice in Mexico for four or five hundred years. Right. You know, so but you know if they get don't count contr- the the drug cartels going on right now, <laughs> right? But if they get control, you know that that's going to be one of the first things they do is they're going to want to revive the old Aztec religion and start rolling heads down the temples and and they'll even go to lie and say that you know the well the white historians made up those human sacrifices. Well, no, the archaeology, the 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 studies, the scientific studies on the the earth around the pyramids show the entire you know the the soil completely surrounding the area is saturated with blood and they found a few years ago these burials that the aztecs would create these huge temples out of skulls well they you know the spanish covered them up and uh, they were found underneath the ground level a few years ago and these just you know tens of thousands of human skulls that were uh, of people that were sacrificed but they want everybody to believe that the christians were the suppressors not the liberators you know and that's always the dialogue that gets sold by the left they take everything and they invert it i'm going to pass it back up to you and shut up for a little bit do you have more you want (laughs) to get into uh on uh, socrates there yeah let me um pull up my i have some questions here so one of the things I'm trying to look for, okay. So Socratic questioning is going to, is good for asking questions to help raise basic issues. 
it's really good for probing beneath the surface of things. It's really good for pursuing problematic areas of thought, helping it helps students discover the structure of their own thought. So a lot of people really don't even know the structure of their own thinking. And so when you are able to uh, do Socratic dialogue, like I actually do with my children all the time, they come to me with problems and I just start asking them Socratic questions to kind of dive deeper, 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 deeper. And it, every time I do that, um, even if I'm not making a point of uh, pointing out that I'm doing it, it's actually helping them to discover their own thinking. It helps students uh, develop sensitivity to clarity, accuracy, relevance, depth. It helps people uh, arrive at judgments through their own reasoning. So what's called a reasoned judgment. Most people think, well, I don't want to make a judgment that's judgmental. But a reasoned judgment is actually kind of a, a class of its own. You have facts on one side, you have opinions on the other. And in the middle, you have reasoned judgment. And reasoned judgment is a very important class of thinking. And then lastly, we have uh, it helps people to analyze thinking, its purposes, assumptions, questions, points of view, information, inferences, concepts, and implications. So again, we need to analyze our thinking and um, analyze each and every belief, each and everything we're talking about. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, if we're on the right or if we're on the left or uh, anywhere that we're at, we need to be questioning ourselves, and it's going to help us to become more pure in our thinking. And it just so happens that the more that I have done this, the more that I've questioned my own beliefs and questioned my own thinking, the more that I've naturally gone to the right politically. Isn't that the truth? Wow. You know, and I started off this show very liberal-leaning, and of course, when I started the show, my son was a year and a half old, maybe. You know, now he's almost 14, and uh, you know, as your children grow up, you also don't want this sort of stuff, you know, going into your kids' minds. So, you know, when you don't, when you're not a parent or when your children are very young, it's easy to kind of overlook this. But once they start repeating back everything you say, it's like, oh, wait a second. You know, this, <coughs> this is, uh, this is an issue. I need to change my perspective on this. Now, Charles in the uh, chat says, I have indulged in consuming a few conscious altering plants and I have found them to be of assistance in breaking free from mentally and spiritually entrapping previous beliefs. Rather than, so what he's arguing is that being high is going to break him, being high on suggestogens is going to break him free from mentally and spiritually entrapping previous beliefs. Now, on this very channel, Charles, I've done over 200 shows exposing how the psychedelic counterculture in the 60s, the whole thing, was the CIA's MKUltra project. And also on the Logos Media website, for those I'm sure many of you are familiar, but I've written very extensive papers showing how the entirety of the psychedelic revolution was... Uh, uh, the MK Ultra program. So if you go right here to top articles and all of these articles break the whole thing down, it's all primary citations going through and how Gordon Wasson here, the so-called discoverer of magic mushrooms, was the head of the CIA's MK Ultra subproject 58 and showing all of the arguments and documentation and everything going through all of these. But 
I've gone through extensively over the years showing how that this is mind control. And not only that, it promotes leftist liberal mind control or socialism. And uh, so this is certainly not freeing anybody's mind. The CIA promoted this stuff to mind control people, not to free your mind from, you know, your so-called previous beliefs and trapping previous beliefs. And once you understand that Christians literally worship truth as God, as Nathan and I discussed in last week's show— see, and then what he's going to do, he's going to cite my book that I published— in 2005 as the evidence. See, didn't we just talk about, you know, me coming out and saying, you know, what I believed when I was five years old or 15 years ago or whatever isn't the same as today? We just had that conversation. So, you know, he's citing my book back to me on on this Mm -hmm. as evidence, never mind the last decade of primary citations and whatnot that I've exposed on MKUltra. He's only seeking that confirmation bias, which I'm glad he's participating in the chat because this is exactly what we are discussing here. I would like to actually suggest that uh, if somebody has a, a really good questioning mind, that okay, correlation does not imply causation. A lot of people do not realize this. This is something that um, really should be taught more in universities that just because two things correlate does not mean that they one thing caused the other. And so if you look at uh, some people have a really questioning mind, they are asking good questions. They are trying to understand things. And then they, they take a drug and maybe they have an epiphany because they're asking some questions while they're on that drug. And then they think they assume it's the drug that did it rather than the question. And it's my in my view, in my experience, that it is actually the questions and asking good questions and the quality of thought and being able to break down your thinking and understand the different aspects of your thinking and to be able to analyze why you're feeling things, to understand why you're behaving as you're behaving, to really start using the trivium itself and Socratic dialogue to break down uh, the different things that you're thinking, feeling, and how you're behaving. And if you can point that inwards, like in last episode, we talked about pointing your intelligence inwards and and on on itself and self-reflection, then you can actually make some huge headway in becoming a more conscious individual. And to to say that it's, uh, you know, a a mushroom or the drug or this drug did it is, I think it's, it's confusing. Right. You're confusing causation. Right. Well, it, well, exactly. And the drugs cause hypersuggestion. Okay. So with, you know, if you've ever heard a Beatles song or mm-hmm. whatever the case, you know, your favorite Grateful Dead song or whatever the heck, the Grateful Dead were CIA too, so were the Beatles and MI6. But if you ever even heard this music, the program that they want you to believe of the entheogens is in there. And I expose that in my article, Entheogens, What's in a Name? So, Charles, I recommend you read that article as well. And it's uh, up here. Here, I'll just pull it up here and show you all here. So it's uh, this article right here, Entheogens, What's in a Name, which is part four in the series. And the Untold History of Psychedelic Spirituality, Social Control, and the CIA. And in this, I go through and show how Karl Rock and Gordon Wasson and all these people faked 
all of the evidence to make it appear that these were the original foundations of spirituality or whatever and how they spun all of that. But, um, and there was a point I was going to make with that, but when you understand that the drugs cause hypersuggestion and not, they're not the true, they don't bring you to true logos. In fact, it's almost the inverse of what logos is. You know, you're not using logic and reason, which is what logos, the word, is in Christianity. You're taking a drug, which is ironically warned about in Genesis 3, uh, to stay away from the the tree of, of knowledge that creates the fall. And you notice all the hippies eat the the drugs, and then they fall, and then they fornicate to their graven images, or their, I'm sorry, their rock idols, and, uh, you know, in the mud at Woodstock, like, like swine, you know, and then this is the foundation of what they think is spiritual, or limiting beliefs that they've gotten away from, when in actuality, that was the mind control that was being sold by the CIA and the MKUltra program through People like Aldous Huxley, Gordon Wasson, Timothy Leary, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Terrence McKenna, Dennis McKenna, all of these people were involved in this crap. And uh, so, and he says, my proposition is consciousness altering plants have the capability of invoking mental and spiritual growth and logos. Absolutely, 100% wrong. And so I would figure out what Logos is first, Charles. And But see, what you're doing is you're using your confirmation bias. And I'm showing you all of this evidence that, and, and see, what you're doing is you're ignoring the evidence contrary to your confirmation bias and saying, well, I have this proposition that consciousness altering. And, you know, he's using that, you know, these, you know, the words, the, the original words. And if you go into my articles in Theogen, what's in a name? Even the name of the plants themselves were, or the drugs themselves, were created to make you think that they created a spiritual experience. They did not. In fact, in one of the studies I just had up, uh, Oscar Janiger uh, admits that that nobody had a spiritual experience, uh, you know, unless they crossed the Colorado River. Yeah, and when Zinberg says that the visionary experience and all the things he was doing at Harvard and the others, his residents, and the rest uh, he was giving LSD to, they never had a visionary, ecstatic, or mystic experience, that the whole thing was a California invention, he said. Timothy Leary, wonderful, they're right. The only time it happened was when you crossed the Colorado River. Again, I'm going to try to get this into your mind here because you're really struggling with this, Charles. These things are suggestions, and even the names themselves are what make you think that they're spiritual. So the word psychedelic means to manifest the mind, or the name entheogen, to generate God within. And this is, you know, Sufi Gnosticism, Sophism tactics that are... He says, in my humble opinion, you are following your own personal subjective agenda. See, I'm showing him primary citations. He hasn't even looked at the research. And he's saying that I'm the one using subjective agenda here, right? Never mind that I came from his position and wrote books on it and then did a decade of research and studies and over 200 shows exposing his position as wrong, but... 
uh, obviously, if you had read my work, Charles, I created the word suggestogen in 2014. I just showed you the article on screen. Maybe you should study those articles. But um, he he's so caught up in his confirmation bias and ignoring the research and citations that don't jive with his preconceived beliefs that, hey, you know, I was high on drugs, they set me free. He cannot consider the idea that he was wrong and the whole th and that the whole thing was actually the CIA's MKUltra program. Go ahead. A lot of times we can we can determine whether somebody is reasoning from evidence or not based on their emotional state. If they are feeling an emotional charge, if they're triggered, if they're saying things from a trigger, then it is clear evidence that they're actually reasoning from a conclusion. Right. And if you're from a conclusion, now you're going to create or fabricate evidence. You're going to use logical fallacies. Right. Rather mm -hmm. than actual logic or logos. But what he's doing right now, he's mm -hmm. arguing that because he's 65, he knows better. So, you know, as I am 65 years old, Jan. I am not new to this. I have read most of your work. Obviously, he hasn't because he can't deal with the citations. He probably read my... He read my book, which he already named from 15 years ago, which I already said I was against and did the last 10 years of research and shows against, but he hasn't gone on to the site. You know, he says, I love your map of the brain. I respect your work. Okay, well, go in, and what you need to do, Charles, rather than thinking with logical fallacies, which is what you're doing, read the articles that I just showed you on the website. Check the citations yourself. All of the citations are there. There's several hundred citations in those articles. And try to refute them. And if you can't, then you have to admit you're wrong and stop. Now, this show isn't the Charles Stewart show, so I'm going to stop answering to his diatribes and fallacious arguments. But, you know, I just find it ironic that this whole conversation is about this. And here Charles shows up to give us, you know, to actually exemplify what we're talking about right now. But he's not grasping that until he goes through and checks those citations and that research and everything, that he's going to be wrong and not able to admit it. But he has to go through and look at the research. And citing my book from 15 years ago rather than the articles I just cited, is that's a bait and switch there, straw man argument. So go ahead. Let's uh, let's go on. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, arbitrary versus um, objective accountability. So if I'm holding somebody accountable, you know, for their uh, their actions, their behaviors, or you know, usually just their actions or behaviors, but it is also about their thinking. So if you're in a conversation, um, you can hold somebody accountable in a, an objective fashion or in an arbitrary fashion. Arbitrary is usually emotionally based. You know, I, you hurt my feelings and you need to say sorry and I feel bad. But to hold somebody uh, accountable in an objective fashion, you could s just use some of the uh, different character traits or some of the different intellectual standards, sorry. So for example, you have clarity, accuracy, precision, um, relevance, depth, breadth, uh, logic, significance, and fairness. So in this, you could say for like clarity, could you please elaborate further or give me an example or could you illustrate what you mean? That's asking for clarity. And now you've just held somebody accountable by asking that question. So it's not even you're going into this giant Socratic dialogue with them. This, they told you a story or they, they said something on, you know, on a comment on a, 
a blog post or on your Facebook wall, and you, you don't really understand what they're saying, instead of attacking that, you could just say, hey, could you uh, please elaborate further? I don't really understand what you're saying. Or could you give me an example? Because that's going to help with clarity. Or you could hold them accountable. Well, is that really accurate? How can we check that that's accurate? So in this instance with Charles, um, you know, was the accuracy wasn't there because the, the first book that you were talking about 15 years ago isn't necessarily as accurate as the information that you now right. have. Well, listen, listen to this. Now this guy is going on. I'm about to block him here. But first he said, uh, you know, no room for dissenting opinions. Okay, so we've already discussed that a contradiction is always a lie or an error. There are no contradictions in nature. So if there is a contradiction, it's not about dissenting opinions and opinions are like a-holes and everybody has one. Whenever there is a contradiction, it means you haven't dug down into the research enough. And then he says, you're presuming that an, that an objective jury would recognize the merits of your position. So without reading my position and the research and verifying all of the citations, what he's doing is he's trying to establish a pseudo-intelligent appeal to ridicule that, you know, I'm assuming that a jury of people would come to the same conclusion. Well, Charles would have to, first of all, read them himself. You have to have the cognitive capacity, Charles, to go in and read them yourself and then show us how my opinions, based on primary citations in that research, are wrong. And you haven't done that. So before you can appeal to some jury, first you have to have the mental acuity to understand that you first have to go in and read the work verify the citations, and show how the work is wrong. If you're incapable of doing that, then you must admit that you, you Charles Stewart, are wrong. It's really, it's that simple. So Charles is going on a timeout, and uh, I'm not going to, he says, you're resorting to ad hominems. You know, see, he's bouncing all over the place with logical fallacies, which he doesn't even understand the use of the trivium. So he's trying to dodge and go every which way rather than admit that he hasn't used critical thinking to study the work. So now I'm going to block him or uh, put him on timeout because he's not, he, he's not saying, okay, I'll study the work and I'll get back to you. What he's saying is he's trying to heap on logical fallacies and I'm against dissenting opinions and juries and all of this stuff. And, and at this point, it gets, you know, stupid, so... Go ahead. Okay, so uh, we got through clarity and accuracy. We also have precision. Could you be more specific? Could you be more exact? Can you give me some more details? So these are all questions that are systematic that we can ask that will help us to be, get more precision. We can find out if it's relevant. Have you ever had somebody say something to you that just didn't seem relevant to what you're talking about? Like, well, how does that relate to the problem? I like to say, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? You know, assuming we're talking about the tea in China. Uh, how does that bear on the question? And how does that help us with the issue? Is it relevant? Depth. Uh, what factors make this uh, difficult problem? What are some of the complexities of this question? What are some of the difficulties we need to deal with? We need to go deeper into, into the issue. And um, you can hold somebody accountable with depth. Now we also have breadth. That's looking at other perspectives and viewpoints. That uh, another word for breadth is empathy or empathetic reasoning. Do we need to look at this from another perspective? Do we need to consider another point of view? 
Uh, do we need to look at this in other ways? And another way might be different domains and disciplines. So what would a psychologist say? What would a psychiatrist say? What would a doctor say? What would a scientist say? Um, what, what would a sociologist say? Uh, what would a politician on the left say? What would a politician on the right say? And so we can kind of create some breadth to what we're looking at by looking at other points of view, domains, and disciplines. Then you have logic. Does this make sense? Does it fit together? Is it, uh, um, does it follow from the evidence? So rather, does it follow from your emotions? You know, if you're reasoning from a conclusion, does it actually follow from evidence, which is reasoning in the correct direction? Significance. Right. Is this the most important problem to consider? Is right. this a central idea? Does your age, what relevance does your age have to do on the arguments and facts presented? Right. What, you know, well, what, relevant. you know, what does, what do the dissenting opinions have to do with the, re, with the evidence presented? What do, you know, hypothetical juries, what relevance does that have? Have you studied it yourself and, and do you have the capacity to understand those citations, et cetera? Um, uh, aren't you censoring him if you block him for five minutes, even though we read his comments on air and discussed them? So now somehow that's censorship. And, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on from there. So, you know, then. Well, I would like to address that. And it, it does have to do with minimum standards and also um, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So if, if somebody's coming in... Well, you should at least let me say the... Dun I, I was just going to say, you know, and moving <laughs> on to the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's like I, I have what's called minimum standards for a conversation. So if somebody comes to me and they start blasting me or kind of behaving in an emotional manner and uh, they're, they're riddled with logical fallacies and emotion, and if I can tell that they're trying to dominate with me with their opinion... Um, and they're not willing to listen to what I said or what I wrote. Uh, I will really, rather than discussing their opinion and what they wrote, I'm going to actually just attack their logic and I'm going to attack, attack their reasoning. And I'm going to kind of point out where they're, uh, they're wrong. I mean, it, they, they don't, I'm not going to actually hold a conversation about, you know, that's logical and reasonable if they're not going to approach me with logic and reason. Right. If they're, if they're not going to follow from the evidence and if they're not going to look at the evidence and they're not going to try to collaborate with me, but they're just argumentative, then I don't have to look at your viewpoint because you're just start being argumentative and argumentative people aren't reasonable. Well, well and we, we have to be, to have a see, conversation. what they will do at that point is they will actually invert it on you and say, you are not willing to look at their argument. And here's the, the weirdest thing. Well, but that's, that's a narcissist thing you shared earlier today. Right. Exactly. You're the ones who start it. And they're not willing to look at their side, but now because you reacted to their, their emotional attack, because you, they, they behaved in an emotional manner and you reacted to their emotion. Now you're the one that's in, you know, at fault, right? But that's, that's the trick of a narcissist. Absolutely correct there. And so rather than, you know, and the correct answer would be, okay, thank you for laying out that research, not, not cite a book that I wrote 15 years ago that isn't about this research, which is exactly what he did. He used an alternative straw man argument to try to attack me on work that he hadn't read. 
right, you know, so it, 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 the proper response should be, thank you for doing that research. I will study it and look into it, verify your citations and get back to you on it. You know, yeah, and, and then and we could have we ask you questions. Right. And then, right. And logical questions. And then we could have an actual dialogue about the research. Is the research wrong? What parts of it were wrong? What did you disagree with and why? You know, yeah. but they don't approach it from that aspect. They approach it from, well, I was high on drugs in the jungle and I'm 65 years old and, you know, and, you know, you don't allow dissenting opinions and so there. And that's their argument, you know. Yeah, just dissenting opinions must be clear and uh, they must come in with logical rules and they have to be fair minded and they need to be reasoning from evidence and not from conclusions. Right. Otherwise, they're not really a valid dissenting opinion. They're just an uninformed, blind opinion. Well, exactly, which is what I started out with when I mentioned the whole Aztec thing, you know, and, and that was why I went into that. But these people don't understand the foundation of the entire uh, work. Ad hominem attack is what the supposed Logos media demonstrates. See, they don't even understand what an ad hominem is. I didn't say he's wrong because he's a moron. Yeah. That would be an ad hominem attack. See, first first grasp what an ad hominem attack is. I said he's wrong and he's not presenting a valid argument. I gave reasons why, and I said that he is not even willing to look at the evidence. So at least I know I am stupid. What's worse is one who falls into name-calling stupid, pretending to be logical. So this is this Kujam, I don't know, probably some Muslim guy or something just arguing to argue because he's upset. But, um, you know, let's see. This is probably a troll account or something. I wouldn't be surprised. But... um. Can I, uh, you can know, I share something? Yeah, please do. Can and I, I want to also, while you're doing that, I'm going to show what an ad hominem attack is so people actually know the definition. Because what I mm-hmm. see of, of very, very often is most people don't even know what the fallacies are, and then they will try to call them out. Can I, can I share a, a, do a screen share? Yeah. Okay. Do you see that? It's coming up. Here you go. Okay. So this is also from criticalthinking.org. It's also in one of his books. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But uh, there's three levels of thinking. There's lower order thinking, higher order thinking, and highest order thinking. And level one is lower order, and that's completely unreflective. Very low to mixed skill level. It relies on gut intuition, largely self-serving, self-deceived. Level two, it's selectively reflective high skill level, lacks critical thinking vocabulary, inconsistently fair, maybe skilled in sophistry. So a sophist is a level two thinker and they can always manipulate level one thinkers. And that's their whole thing is they just, they get off on, on manipulating level one thinkers, but they, they can't really manipulate level two thinkers or level three thinkers. And also when I say selectively reflective, it's being reflective means that you're, you're looking at your own thinking and you're, you're judging your thinking. You're trying to refine it and asking yourself questions, but it's not always. And so sometimes it's going to be emotional. And then level three is highest order thinking, and it's explicitly reflective. It's extremely high skill level, excuse me, 
a routine use of critical thinking tools in analyzing and assessing thinking, and it's consistently fair. Now, level two thinkers are often going to throw away, throw around a lot of critical thinking uh, terms like logical fallacies, but they're going to use them incorrectly on a, a lot of occasions, not all the time, um, because that's how you, you learn. That's how you practice. That's how you get better at it. Correct. Uh, but, but also they are going to use those terms and sophists like to use the terms also, um, especially uh, uh, monological thinkers. So if you were to look at these three levels, higher order thinking is still very much monological. And once you get to the highest order thinking, it's multi-logical. So it's like playing uh, a level three thinker is playing 3D chess and a, a level two thinker is playing just one dimensional chess. So Correct. I'll stop. Sharing. All right. So, and then what I wanted to show here is the actual, thanks for that, for the actual definition mm -hmm. of an ad hominem attack here. And people can go on triviumeducation.com, like I said, and learn some critical thinking and there's a whole list of, of fallacies on the uh, Trivium Education page. Uh, it's, you can find it under Trivium and then some logical fallacies. And there's a bunch of them here. But I recommend memorizing at least ba the basic 20 of these. But here's an ad hominem attack. An ad hominem attack is a general category of fallacies in which a claim or argument is rejected on the basis of some irrelevant fact about the author or person pretend. Uh, person presenting the claim or argument. So in the case of Charles a bit ago, you know, I'm against descending opinions rather than attacking my actual argument. He was trying to attack me or he was bringing up, you know, fallacies fall under uh, three categories, uh, relevance, presumption, and ambiguity. And that's up here somewhere. Let's see. Where is that? Anyway, it should be here somewhere. Let me just find that really quickly. It's been a while since I've gone through this myself. Anyway, somewhere up here, it should establish how fallacies fall under three categories, relevance, presumption, and ambiguity. And so rather than understanding the argument I'm presenting, he's discussing juries and, you know, I'm against dissenting opinions and this kind of stuff. Uh, these are all, these all fall under ir irrelevance. Uh, they're not relevant to the evidence presented. Now, an ad hominem is if I said, you know, Charles is stupid, therefore he's wrong. And if I make an attack against him rather than his the, the fallacious arguments that he is presenting. I didn't do that. I didn't say Charles is a moron, therefore he's wrong. I said Charles is using all of these fallacious arguments. He's not willing to look at the evidence. He's not willing to reconsider his position. So therefore, he's wrong. And he would have to furthermore take up the onus of proof, which the onus of proof fell on me when I wrote the articles in the first place, making my arguments. So then if he's going to claim that that research is wrong because of dissenting opinions, first he would have to take those arguments in, understand what they are, check the citations, and then through the onus of proof, he has to show how that argument is wrong. And he utterly failed to do that. So what we're trying to do is show how critical thinking works. I didn't say, again, He's wrong because he's stupid or he's wrong because circumstantial ad hominem attack. He wears pink shirts on Tuesdays. 
you know. So uh, you have to look at the evidence and think logically and reason through the facts. Now, getting into the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect, do you want to show the images that you had sent over on that? Yeah. Um, let me share that. And then you get the uh, flat earthers who always post irrelevantly no matter what. We're having a conversation about something else, and then a flat earther <laughs> jumps in and blurts out some ir irrelevant you know, thing and thinks that they are making a logical argument. <laughs> well, let's get on the Dunning-Kruger. All right. <laughs> uh, okay, so Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, I just I try to use Wikipedia for a lot of things, um, not because I necessarily trust it, uh, but because it's a widely accepted, you know, and some of these things are just normal stuff. They're not there's no agenda here for talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. So in the field of psychology, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people of low ability, and this is usually about low thinking ability, have an illusory superiority and mistakenly assess their cognitive ability as greater than it is. The cognitive bias of illusory superiority comes from the inability of low ability people to recognize their lack of ability. Without the self-awareness of uh, metacognition, low ability people cannot objectively evaluate their actual competence or incompetence. And I'm going to actually um, read something here that really crystallizes this. It, this Kirsty Percy just said it perfectly here. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is where a person believes themselves to be smarter and more competent than they actually are. In essence, it shows how people with low ability do not have the necessary critical ability and self-awareness to recognize how low their ability actually is. This leads to them to having a superior view of their own competence and knowledge. And in simple words, it is when people who are, are too stupid to know how stupid they are. <laughs> so this, this might sound arrogant on our part, but this is an actual phenomenon. This is, there are, are people that, um, because they've, in fact, I, I've seen, you know, people with really big degrees that have this. Oh, absolutely. We call because them, we call to argue, they haven't been trained to think. We, we call them PH does for a reason, you know, <laughs> And, and it's like, you know, uh, getting a degree doesn't mean that you actually are a thinker. It just means that you're a good repeater in many cases. You can repeat the information back. You can parrot it back and you can tell people what they want to hear. But that doesn't mean you thought yourself to your own conclusions. And it's you need that ability to think through things, to think through the problems. And, and we're talking about even thinking through math problems, thinking through um, sociological problems, psychological problems. These all require the ability to to think through them, to understand them. Because without understanding, without the why, then you're just a parrot. So in the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you have two things. You have the Dunning-Kruger effect, you have Mount Stupid, but then you have what's called the, the Valley of Despair with imposter syndrome. And so people will get really high confidence, but really low ability. And now they, you know, they, they think they know everything. You know, they're, they're talking about you know, Donald Trump at the water cooler about how stupid he is because he's, you know, he's creating the, the space force. Well, why, why would, and then, you know, they think he's stupid for that. 
But that makes me think, like, why in the heck would he be making a Space Force unless there was an actual need for it? That, that's just not something you just arbitrarily do. You break something off of the Air Force and create a Space Force. I mean, that's you would have to think that there would be a reason for that. What would be that reason? Well, they're just criticizing, and they're really, really confident about their criticism and how stupid Donald Trump is for making a Space Force. Um, but then you have people who, once they start actually investigating they start learning a little bit more they start getting a little bit more expertise they actually drop down and they have very low confidence level and part of this is because they keep looking at the people that are uh like arrogant and super confident open mouth stupid and you know they're like well they must know something right <laughs> and uh so it's smart people actually judge the dumb people as smarter and the, the dumb people judge themselves as smarter. So that's the kind of, that's why you have the Valley of Despair and you have Mount Stupid or imposter syndrome and Dunning-Kruger effect. Because it's based on the confidence of the argument and not the actual argument itself. So, exactly. So what you have is, you know, okay, so you and I are confident in our arguments because we've spent years and years studying what we argue. I've spent right. over a decade researching MKUltra, the psychedelic counterculture. I've done hundreds of shows on it. The, the 60s music, The Grateful Dead with Hans Utter, Burning Man. Um, you know, <clears throat> over 200 shows is my estimation on the psychedelic counterculture in the 60s and all of this stuff. And I've written extensive papers. Behind me on this side is about 26 shelf feet of space on nothing but books on psychedelic drugs, that whole entire shelf over there. And so then I've spent years researching this, going through Princeton University archives, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, on and on and on, amassing a, a, a vast amount of unpublished documentation, going through research, publishing all of this, breaking, you know, coalescing it and breaking it down and publishing it. And then somebody's argument against me is I'm wrong because they were high on drugs, had a spiritual experience, and they're 65 years old. <laughs> right? So my confidence in the research is based on actual research and digging in the trenches and finding it, not just saying I'm confident because I was high. Okay, so um, these guys, they did win a Nobel Prize on, for this uh, research in psychology. So again, we see uh, that people who are super confident, um, they know nothing. And even the experts don't dare to have that much confidence. Well, and, and, be, and why is it that the experts don't have that much confidence? Because they know if you're an expert, you know the research inside and out. And you know what somebody would have to present to refute your argument. Yeah. Right. But, but you're still not going to be going up to the level of the arrogance confidence because you always know that there's more information out there. You always know that there's more to learn about a subject. You always know that you're waiting for uh, new information to come in. Um, and, well, and you know to review that information when it comes in, but because you use the trivia method, you're able to compare it to the inventory of your mind or the research that you've already gone through. And if you've already debunked that argument or you've already reviewed it, 
you can put it aside. It does, you know, you know that it doesn't hold water any place, but you at least, you know, go through the inventory of your mind and check it against the research that you've already gone yeah, through, and then you can, and, and then you can easily dismiss it. You look at um, inductive reasoning in the scientific method. Inductive reasoning does not create certainty; it creates probabilities. And so, in each scientific paper, they're going to say it's a possibility, it's a probability, and then there, or you know, this it may have this effect, and it demonstrated that it had this effect in this amount of the cases, right? But somebody who's showing the Dunning Kruger effect, they're going to be like, "But science said, and you, you know, it's a hundred percent correct, and you know that kind of thing." So the expert is, you know, using words like maybe and probability and possibly, while the the Dunning Kruger uh, person that is overly confident the arrogant, pretentious person, they're stating things as absolute certainties. Yes. Although if you have reviewed all of the research, you can state, you know, see, the trivium is about finding certainty with any information, but it's not to be arrogant about it. It is, however, to find certainty. You know, and we talk- Yeah, well, I mean, you're not going to, an expert is not going to listen to you know, the ramblings of, of the people who are really confident, you know, right. Who are really confident without evidence. They're going to, you know, if someone like Charles was able to approach me and say, you know, look at all this research I've done, how does it compare to yours? And then he and I could sit down and go through and say, well, this is this and that and, and yada, yada. And there we have a actual, an actual conversation. So, Go ahead. Did you have something you wanted to add to that? Uh, no. Um. Okay. So I wanted to get into. Uh, the actual Dunning-Kruger effect study here, if you would okay. like to. Get into that some as well. And what I want to do, I'm just looking for the uh, summary. I had it up a little bit ago. Let's see here. Relation to work on overconfidence. The finding that people systematically overestimate their ability and performance calls to mind other work on calibration in which people make a prediction and estimate and estimate the likelihood that the prediction will prove correct. Consistently, the confidence with which people make their predictions far exceeds the accuracy rates. Our data both complement and and extend this work. In particular, work on overconfidence has shown that people are more miscalibrated when they face difficult tasks, ones for which they fail to possess the requisite knowledge, than they are for easy tasks, one which they do possess that of that knowledge. Our work replicates this point not by looking at properties of the task, but at the properties of the person. Whether the task is difficult because of the nature of the task or because the person is unskilled, the end result is a large degree of overconfidence. Our data also provide an empirical rebuttal to the critique that has been leveled at the at past work on overconfidence. And then uh, let's skipping down. And uh, these people have argued here. I'll just show this on screen. It might be easier. It reminds me of the Peter principle. 
where people get promoted to their level of incompetence. <laughs> people have argued that the types are uh, these guys here have argued that the types of probability estimates used in traditional overconfidence work, namely those concerning the occurrence of single events, are fundamentally flawed. According to the critique, probabilities do not apply to single events, but only to multiple ones. As a consequence, if people make probability estimates in more appropriate contexts, such as by est estimating the total number of test items answered correctly, cognitive illusions such as overconfidence disappear. Our results call this critique into question. Across the three studies in which we have relevant data, participants consistently overestimated the number of items they had answered correctly. And he gives a little formula here. Concluding Ramar's, uh, Ramark, Ramarkson's sum we present this article as an exploration into why people tend to hold overly optimistic and miscalibrated views about themselves. We propose that those with limited knowledge in a domain suffer a dual burden. Not only do they reach mistaken conclusions and make regrettable errors, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. That's that's the the kicker right there. And Isn't I think it? in general, people who know how to think and they have the trivium, they can go into any domain and realize that, you know, they, they'll have the ability to to judge things a little bit better than everybody else. And and also to. You know, like any domain you, you're thrown into, if you have the, the trivium, you're going to be able to critique it at least a little bit, or at least to know enough that you aren't going to make a fool of yourself right, and right. act stupid and be overconfident. It, it's like the trivium is going to help you not be overconfident. You're going to be Correct. exactly confident as you so, should be. You know, that reminds me of this, this instance. It was over, it was about 14 months ago when I first began interacting with Lloyd DeYoung. And, you know, before we did the all the shows on Islam. And uh, I was at the time reading the Quran and I was about maybe 70% through it. And I was like, okay, so, you know, I stated these points and then Lloyd comes in and he attacks those points. And then I tried to rebut it and then he attacks it. So by the second or third exchange, I went, hold on a second. This guy knows far more about this subject than I do. Lloyd, why don't you come on the show, right? right? And why don't you present your research? Rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I don't care what you've researched or that you're an Islamic terrorism expert or that you've, you know, got, you know, decades of research. You know, I know better because I read a third of the Quran. Never mind, I hadn't studied the Hadith or the Tisfir or the Sunnah or the Way of the Traveler, or the Sharia laws yet, you know, and... You know, so I using the trivium and engaging him, it was very easy for me to realize that he had far more knowledge on the subject, and then I backed down. Whereas, you know, and that, you know, I guess to make a jab at Charles somewhat, um, Charles is not in an intellect, you know, he's 
He's they, they reach the mistaken conclusion and make regrettable errors, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. So he's not in a position to recognize his incompetence of the topic. So he's going to try to argue with an expert on MKUltra and these subjects without reading the research first. So he's, appro- he's approaching the topic from, you know, argument from ignorance and then claiming that he has the position of more knowledge and then ra- and then and age and well you know rather than recognizing a contradiction is always a lie or an error and there are no contradictions in nature he's going to use the you know oh you can't handle you know differing opinions thing well you know first look at the facts look at the research show me what's wrong and then we can discuss the differing viewpoints but until you present an actual argument rather than, you know, ad vericundium, uh, I'm older than you by, you know, what, 15 <laughs> years, uh, therefore you're wrong, you know. So, you know, that's not an argument. Present actual facts. And so then continuing on here, although we feel we have done a competent job in making a strong case for this analysis, do you see, folks, what Dunning and Kruger are doing here? Although we feel we have done a competent job, in other words, they're saying, they're admitting that they are recognizing their own potential for incompetence. Mm-hmm. And in co- saying somebody is incompetent is not an ad hominem. No. And, and you know, it's, you know, that r- reminds me, it's like if somebody robs your house and you call them a robber or a burglar, that's not an ad hominem. That's a fact. And I see people argue that stuff all the time. Oh, well, you know, it's like, you know, look, you're ignorant. Um, Well, that's an ad hominem attack. No, I didn't say you're wrong because you're ignorant. You know, I stated the fact that you're ignorant. And again, I started this this, uh, episode with that... um, with that quote I posted yesterday, or that comment, and we're just about done here, but I'm going to finish reading the last, the, the conclusion on that as well. But I, if, I do, if I would like to get to humility really quick too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So, um, and I, let me just find that. I didn't realize. Sorry. No, that's all right. Got segued. So let's see here. Identify. That was such a good thing that you posted. So anyway, it was the one on, uh, you know, recognizing your own incompetence of a subject and then having the capacity from there to learn and grow. But if you approach every subject that you are an expert when you haven't done masses amount of research and you aren't even educated in the in the basic foundations of the work, then you don't try to argue it approach every new topic as though you're incompetent then maybe you can learn something so going back yeah, and and schools do that they're they're pumping out people that are argumentative they're sophist they're skilled they might be skilled in sophistry but they're not skilled in thinking and argumentativeness is not critical thinking correct it, and so they they're teaching people what to think not how to think and there's a huge and, difference there and then people go and defend what they what they were taught to think. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's and that's rationalization and that's reasoning from a conclusion, not reasoning from evidence. So although we feel we have done a competent job in making a strong case for this analysis, studying it empirically and drawing out relevant implications, 
Our thesis leaves us with one haunting worry that we cannot vanquish. That worry is that this article may contain faulty logic, methodological errors, or poor communication. Let us assure our readers that to the extent that this article is imperfect, it is not a sin we have committed knowingly. So they're taking responsibility for the possibility of errors and admitting, hey, we may be wrong up front, we didn't commit a sin knowingly or wittingly, and if it's pointed out to us, we're happy to own it and correct it. Well, and that's that's the whole thing again. They're they're the expert in this field. They they want a Nobel Prize for this, and yet they're still less uh, confident than the arrogant would be. Correct. So arrogance humility. versus humility. Okay, so humility is uh, the first of eight intellectual val. Uh, uh, intellectual traits. It's having a consciousness of the limits of one's knowledge, including a sensitivity to circumstances in which one's native egocentrism is likely to function self-deceptively. It's a sensitivity to bias, prejudice, and limitations of one's own viewpoint. Intellectual humility depends on recognizing that one, one should not claim more than they actually know. It does not imply spinelessness or submissiveness. It implies a lack of intellectual pretentiousness, boastfulness, or conceit, combined with an insight into the logical foundations or lack of such foundations of one's beliefs. So humility is, is really just, it's taking the, um, I know that I know nothing. It, it's recognizing that there's so much out there that we don't know. And, and also, I would even say that awakening is awakening to the a consciousness of being conscious of your own bias in the limits that you have. Hey, I'm not God. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not, I don't know it all. And I'm going to, to, I might have a really good way of thinking. I might know the trivium and that kind of stuff, but that's even helps me with my humility. Right. Certain dialogue helps me with my humility. It's, it's a character trait that you actually have to develop. It's not just, it's not just born in people. You have to actually develop it and you can develop it through asking yourself questions and being reflective and, and finding out, whoa, I'm biased. You know, I was telling that um, in one of my videos that I kind of learned and I, that I didn't know it all through my spectacular divorce. My, you know, nine year marriage went up in flames rather spectacularly. And that was the kind of moment that I was like, hmm, I don't know it all. <laughs> you know, I, right. And well, that was a humbling experience. How how often, and I'm sure you get this as well in your work, but somebody will accuse you of being a know-it-all. And it's like, well, only I know the subjects that I've studied, and I'm willing to look at any facts you can present me that may contradict that. And then I don't know what I haven't studied. You know, right. unless I've gone through the whole who, what, where, when process and researched it until you get the, you know, uh, are you done with this uh, screen share? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to unshare there? Yeah, So, uh, you know, when you reach a point in research where the research starts going circular, you know you've covered just about all of the possible information. And then within that, you can see any potential for errors. Or you know, you should know, if you've researched the topic thoroughly... You should know every counter argument to your work before you even write it. 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing when you're a good writer and you're a good thinker, you're asking yourself questions about what they could ask. And then you address those questions before anybody else could. Right. And, and the irony is like in my articles on psychedelics and MKUltra and all of that, I put their arguments in the articles. But if they don't read the articles, they don't know that I've, you know, usually I put them in the introduction, you know, and I, 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 uh, I do that as well. I try um, to, I try to address those arguments to pull them into the conversation because I know, uh, you know, they're going to argue, oh, well, mushrooms or ayahuasca or peyote are older than the CIA. Therefore, you know, I'm wrong. So I'll start off the article with that argument or, you know, have I taken these substances? Well, yeah, I wrote books on them. I did years of research on them in ethnobotany, et cetera. So you address these arguments and then you pull them in. And if you debunk those arguments right at the get-go, a lot of times you can pull people further into the research whether well, where they will consider it more deeply. And... Um, you know, and then there's always going to be those who are arrogant and are going to say, well, ha, well, th this can't be because X, Y, Z, you know, and it, it just doesn't jive with their confirmation bias. But they have to be willing to be humble and have the humility to say, am I possibly wrong? And if you can approach a subject by admitting that you could possibly be wrong i'm i'm totally willing for anyone out there to show me the research on how i could how my last decade of research on mk ultra could be possibly wrong right. but you know when when i addressed the the library full of books over there and and just on this one topic and the citations and research i don't get valid arguments i get arguments like like charles well I was high and therefore you're wrong. Yeah. I would like to address one more thing and that's false humility versus true humility. And it's connected to the trivium. As you know, there's three steps. There's grammar, logic, and rhetoric, the what, uh, the why, and the how. And false humility happens at the how stage, whereas true humility happens at the what stage. And True humility, your starting presumption is that I don't know it all. Your starting presumption is that you are uh, needing to take in viewpoints, take in information, find evidence, et cetera, and that there's other viewpoints that could also contribute to your viewpoint and that you can integrate that which works and throw away that which does not work. And um, But on false humility, it's like at the end where you're kind of saying, you know, Oh no, it was nothing. I didn't really, you know, I, you know, like you did such a great song and it was so amazing. And, you know, how could you be such a great singer? And you're like, Oh no, it's, you know, it's really just about my team and, you know, without them, I'm nothing. And I, I'm not that good really. And um, that's the, the false humility. You're downplaying your accomplishment at the how stage, at the action stage, at the, at the, the final stage, rather than, um, you know, going into it intellectually and knowing that you're not a know-it-all and knowing that you have biases and knowing that you, you could make errors in your judgment and things like that. Kevin, or I was reading, sorry, I was reading Kevin's comment and he was saying that the COVID can attack the central nervous system. So therefore 
you know, making people stupid, you know, so can being a vegetarian, <laughs> eating a low fat diet and low cholesterol diet attacks the brain and the nervous system. Uh, being a liberal attacks the nervous system, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you can go right on down the list, you know, not having a family attacks the nervous system. Um, there's lots of things that do. I haven't applied the trivium to the coronavirus to bother to uh, go into that. What I wanted to ask you, Nathan, mm -hmm. is usually every year or two, I do sort of a review of what the trivium is and, you know, break it down and explain it to people. Uh, do you think it would behoove us to approach that topic once again and put it out, you know, again as, you know, just a focused discussion on the trivium method? You know, it, it's always good to get another viewpoint. It's always, it, and also not just another viewpoint, but a synergy of viewpoints. So, or another recap, I, another, you yeah. know, and, and, and not just a recap, but like what you and I could discuss about the trivium will be different than what you and somebody else might discuss. Or, or about G, me and Gino Denny in a decade ago or, or on and mm -hmm. on and on. Right. So, yeah, I'd like to do that with you if you are interested. Sometimes. Yeah, I'm down. You're down. When would you like to do that? You, uh, you're going to be free next week and we'll do make this a three-parter. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm free. So I think this is a good place to, uh, break it up here. I'm just reading the comments here and thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, oh goodness. Stephen Moss for the, uh, super chat. Thanks everybody to your support and, uh, showing the love and whatnot. Uh, logosmedia.com is the website. <laughs> Please post up your super chats, uh, send your love and donations, uh, hit the like and s the, the like and subscribe and make sure you hit the little bell button to get the alerts for the show. One of these days I'm going to try to get some t-shirts and whatnot up there for people to be able to buy right there on the channel too. I've been meaning to do that for a long time. But thank you so much, Nathan, for participating. It was good. Sorry about the uh, interruptions we had today. My apologies for that. And it works out just fine. Let's see. So next week is my birthday. I can't believe it. Uh, and uh, so that'll be Tuesday the 17th. We'll be covering the trivium. And uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Good night, everybody. See you next week, and until then, take care, go enjoy your families, and God bless. And we didn't end with John 1, should we? If that's what, if that's what I'll, folks are about. I'll, I'll, I'll skip it this time. We did it last time. But uh, <laughs> anyway, take care. Good night.